on this week's episode of the Green Door Podcast. We discover that camping can be intense. We find out that Mandos can really keep a secret. We discuss Manway's reluctance to make decisions. We talk about Melkor and how low-key he can be. We meet the starry-eyed firstborn children, a.k.a. the elves. And we hear about a war so earth-shattering, it shattered the earth. All this and more, coming up right now. Just around the corner and in the next glade. There you guys are. What a perfect camping spot you've picked out. Ads, great to see you. May, have you got the tent? I got it. I got it. But, you know, I don't know what to do with this thing. I hope it comes with instructions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think we can probably all figure it out together. Uh, Ads, you've, have you got the matches over there? How you doing, buddy? Yeah, yeah, I've been getting some wood for the fire, so i uh, got a bit of bacon. We can cook on it in a bit, um, but I'll yes. light the fire now, and um, then I'll come over and give you a hand with the tent. Uh, excellent. Thanks. Uh, we'll figure the tent out by, uh, by the end of the show, I hope. Um, and I've got my hammock, because I'm, I'm going to sleep under the stars tonight. We've picked a camping spot uh, to talk about this particular chapter, because we're hoping to see some elves. Uh, ads, when you're making that bacon, don't forget, I like mine extra crispy. May? Yeah, I like mine with a little dousing of maple syrup on top. Nice, <laughs> oh, nice yeah. and candied. The Canadian touch. Uh, and ads, I know you're an expert at lighting that fire. You have what you need? Yeah, no, I've got it. Here it goes. Perfect. Uh, while ads lights that up and May unfurls the tent with a confused look on her face, <laughs> I'd like to welcome everybody... Uh, to our campfire tonight, uh, we've gonna, we are going to uh, build a big one. It'll be bonfire esque for the first uh, part of the evening, um, so that everybody can find a place nearby that's warm and comfortable, uh, a place here under the stars where we can talk about a chapter that involves the, the awakening of the elves. Uh, this is really off the cuff too. I'll, I'll mention that uh, if this episode's uh, sounds looser or different than than most. It's because we're coming at it uh, in a different way. And Ads and May are both uh, super super prepared for this uh, evening. Mm-hmm. While I'm just winging it, uh, guys. You got all the show notes in front of you, all your bullet points. Uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things, and we'll start off by saying this chapter, while short, boy, is it dense. Hey guys, Ads, when when we were um, putting the, the bullet points together here, did you quickly realize we've got a lot to talk about? Oh, yeah, loads and loads. I mean, it's, it's actually a really, really interesting chapter. Um, it covers not just a huge sort of period of time, but, you know, it, it's it's fantastic storytelling. And then there's actually sort of the history of the elves as well at the end. It's it's a really dense chapter. It is, uh, it is dense. So we're going to kind of jump all over the place. In the editing room, I'll clean it up to keep it as coherent as possible. 
Uh, as always, as we welcome you in uh, and make yourselves comfortable, there's a bunch of sticks for roasting marshmallows. May suggested using candied bacon uh, instead of graham crackers for your s'mores tonight. <laughs> Good call, May. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you, you can actually get to work on that because you're doing nothing uh, with that tent, just uh, holding it's not going to get it set up. She, she's so just looking at it. Bacon. Yeah, just staring at, staring at things, May. is not going to get anything done. Right, right. <laughs> Um, I'm on the s'mores. I'm on s'mores duty. Yes. I can handle that. If, you, if your s'mores are half as good as your lembus bread, we're in for a lembus bread. We're in oh, for Oh, I love that lembus bread. That was good. Yeah, we know it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I really <laughs> did like that. Yeah, and uh, certainly I think... Oh, you know what, guys? Actually, pass me, um, pass me some of those uh, marshmallows. Before we get the s'mores going, I, I like to burn a couple of marshmallows and eat them straight off the stick. Okay, here you and go. You know, no, don't, here's the rule I always told my campers. And this is a good one for your kids because your campfire season is coming. Never shake a burning marshmallow to put it out. <laughs> a flying Why? burning marshmallow is hot <laughs> and sticky and the fire <laughs> hurts. Seriously, I've seen it happen. Blow on them when they're on fire. Don't shake. Because kids right. will like shake the stick to put it out and the thing will across, across right in your face. But it's a good job. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter anyway because it can't set the tent on fire because we haven't got one yet. No, yeah. the tent. Hopefully, by the end of the show, we get we get the tent up, guys. Yeah. Um, that, you know what? That's a, a, a good thing to bring up now because as we set up uh, the campsite, it's always nice to have that that background music. And tonight's once again is provided by none other than Nathan Mills from Beyond the Guitar. And this is one hell of a talented guy. So if you haven't done it yet on our first six recommendations, <laughs> um, please go out and do it now. His YouTube channel is amazing. Uh, speaking of social media ads. Uh, yes. Now that you've lit the fire, you've got another job to do. Can you can you please talk about Twitter a little bit? I absolutely will do. Okay, so as is as is becoming uh, a usual thing now, I'm going to do my best to run through a few names as quickly as possible. These are the various guys and girls who have interacted with us over the last couple of weeks. So here goes: we have Jay Glover Art, Matthew Salvatore, Olga, Earthen Oak, Karen, Kay Moritz. Flotang, Karina, Josu Alejandro, Sideways42, Joel, or at Real Life Leading, Daniel Simonelli, Samantha McClanahan, Stu Baca, Caitlin, Covert Nerd, Dragon's Eye View, Mithalil, Andy Kelly, Carolyn McDermott, Gundark2000, Kigo, Tom, Jeffrey, Tolkien Twin, Ryan Bullock, Marianne, Anna, Carolina, and I've not messed up this time. Finally, your art sucks. <laughs> See true. what I did there? Well done. Well placed See? at the end there. Yeah, and we've had we've had one new follower in the Facebook group, uh, Andy Kelly, who has been really uh, really good. Uh, jumped right in and has been getting involved, and it's really good to have him on board as well. Yeah, you know what? I want to say hi to Mr. Andy Kelly. Uh, nice to have you in there, Andy. You add a lot of positivity. And yeah, thank does. you so much for all of your contributions. It's really fun to have you in there. Welcome aboard, man. Um, great. Uh, from there, guys, I think uh, we should probably get close to the beginning of this chapter. This would be the point where we would normally answer a question, uh, pulling it out of that spectacularly beautiful dwarf mail bag. Can you hold that thing up over there, Ads? Yeah, I just, I just, yeah, I love to look at it. Uh, it's, it shines so beautifully there in the firelight. I'll give it a little shake. Here we go. 
Yeah, and as, as you can tell sort of by the way it sort of swings loosely there, it is empty tonight. We haven't been by the post office since we're camping. Yeah. Uh, so if you sent us a question, it's probably sitting in the post box, and we will get to it next show. <clears throat> Great. Okay, so that brings us to The Awakening of the Elves. Um, we all sort of read this chapter last minute before coming on. Uh, we were scrambling to get the pages reread. Uh, there's a lot of, of information in there about um, different names of different elves. So um, before we sort of jump into the specific action with Yavanna and Orome at the beginning, I'll say we're not going to spend too much time tonight going into the detail and the genealogy of the different uh, names for the elves. There's a great chart at the end of the book, which Ads will talk about in a little bit, mm. uh, that can help you with that information because uh, it is a bit confusing. But tonight we're going to talk more about sort of the um, narrative action in terms of the development of Middle-earth and the awakening itself uh, of the elves in general. Uh, and that's a nice place to start, because at the very beginning, we've got two main Valar who uh, are exploring what is uh, a, basically a dark Middle-earth under starlight only. If you remember from the last chapter, uh, Middle-earth uh, right now has no real sources of light other than the stars. The two trees are over in Valinor. And so we've got Yavanna, uh, who was played beautifully, by the way, in last week's uh, skit by May K. Helen. If you haven't heard that yet, go check out last <laughs> week's episode. It was a hoot. Um, and yeah, fun. so Yavanna, Mother, a- Mother Nature character, and Orome, the, the huntsman, are the only two sort of spending any time there. And Yavanna's basically, you know, uh, mourning the loss of all of her beautiful things she had started under the light of the, uh, um, the two lamps. Uh, but now that everything's uh, sort of uh, dormant, she's putting things to sleep um, because she's worried that Melkor, who's hanging out also in Middle-earth, is going to corrupt everything. So she's putting things to sleep and crying over the losses while uh, Orome is hunting the foulest things uh, that are sort of starting to manifest themselves over in Middle-earth. And adds, that brings us to the First Council. Um, yeah. Be- because those two are spending time over there, they- they're the only, they're the most in touch with uh, the gross things that Melkor is doing and, and the actual corruption itself. And they- so they go back and say, like, uh, hey, guys, we got to do something about this. Uh, and the First Council of the Valar is called to-, to make a decision about what to do about Melkor sort of running things over in Middle Earth. You want to um, step in and talk about the first of three uh, councils, Ed? Yeah, no, I will do. Uh, so, again, it's that ma- magic number three, uh, and it comes up over and over throughout the book. We've we've got this first council, and Yavanna and Orome are definitely of the mindset that the Valar need to act, and Yavanna actually. She presents her argument to the other Valar, and she she actually asks three questions. So you know, again, another another mm-hmm. example of a number three, and it, she says, "Yet be sure of this: the hour approaches, and within this age, our hope shall be revealed, and the children shall awake. Shall we then leave the lands of their dwelling desolate and full of evil? Shall they walk in darkness while we have light?" Shall they call Melkor Lord while Manwe sits upon Tanaquetl? And this is met with a very obvious reaction from from Tolkus, who wants to go and knock some heads together and 
Um, it's great. I, yeah. I just love this character, the Telkis character. He's like, yep, I'm on board. Uh, are we going to let one guy mess with all of us? How, how long? Aren't we rested? <laughs> isn't, isn't, aren't we ready to go? Like, okay, I get it. You know, we, we wanted to uh, make sure that we weren't going to break everything and we needed to rest and you guys wanted to repose, but it's time to fight. It is. And, and do you know what, James? I'm, when I read this chapter, I was getting, and I'll go into it in more detail as we go through, but I was getting quite annoyed with the Valar. They, 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 to me, do not do what they should have done. I mean, the very opening paragraph talks of how the Valar dwelt in bliss in the light of the trees through long ages. You know, they, they haven't... <laughs> They haven't really been bothered, apart from Yavanna and Orome, they haven't really been bothered with, with um, Middle-earth and... Uh, for, They're out of touch. Yeah, they are, and they've just let Melkor yep. take over. You know, they've let him, it even says, but in the north, Melkor built his strength, and he slept not. And it's allowed him to gain this very strong position, which they will then have to break down. Um, and they could have done it differently, I think. No, uh, the, the, you could say that that was a poor decision. Uh, I've heard reasons and excuses for it. May I, I've heard, for example, in certain discussions and chat rooms about this, one of the problems is uh, Manway, the guy leading the decisions, the decision head decision maker, could only really imagine that Melkor would do the things that Manway would do. He could only, he couldn't, because he couldn't think like Melkor, he made mistakes in assuming that in the end he would, wouldn't do the extreme wrong thing. He would see the light. He would come around. And so, um, you know, and this is another example of him waiting too long because he just can't see the world the way Melkor does. Do you, does that make any sense? Is that an excuse uh, for non-action? Um, is it an excuse or a justification? I don't know. Manway sounds naive in this respect. Absolutely, uh, that's a good word. How can you be the ruler of a people and not be able to foresee the next the next move by your opponent? You know, uh, what is it that they say? Uh, to keep peace, you have to prepare for war. case if if your enemy number one melkor is busy like a bee just building his kingdom of darkness and you're just kind of sitting back in your in the golden glow of your lamps and just hanging out sipping some nice wine you know how are you preparing to keep uh your land safe how are you preparing to defeat your opponent and this is this so, is this is with with tolkus on your side as well so, right, who's already proved, yeah. um, you know, he can make uh, Melkor run and hide. Exactly. It just, it didn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I, when I was reading it, it sounded to me as if, as if Manway was reactive rather than proactive. It, it, sure. He, he reacts to things um, after the councils. You know, he, he decides to do things eventually, but he doesn't, he doesn't foresee the problem. He doesn't sort of... Um, he doesn't stop it before it started. Um, and I think I think that's a massive problem. Yeah, I, I can't argue that point um, entirely. I will, I will sort of deflect a little 
and say, I think of all of the Valar, Mandos and Manwe are playing the longest game. And I think they're slowest to, to make decisions because they look the furthest down the road. Mm. And they do weigh, I think Manwe especially, weigh, uh, Mandos does it because of foresight. He seems to have uh, you know, the most inf- inside information, maybe the best memory of the music in some ways. Yeah. Um, but but Manwe um, seems to really not want to make a dis- make an action that is an active mistake and and do more damage. So he's he seems to err on the side of inaction, which you know, like it or not, um, is still a decision. Right, deciding to do nothing is still a decision. Yeah. Uh, so he he, he yeah, decides to do to do nothing. Um, what se- seemingly at the beginning of the book, maybe more than he should. Um, in the long run, uh, who knows? Because uh, as we're about to come to, as we're about to talk about, like you guys say, he's inactive, he's inactive. And as, as they're discussing, um, Yavanna, I think it is in the book, who says, like, what, are we, are we going to let the, the, the firstborn be, be born in darkness under the light of just the stars? And, and that's finally when Mandos pipes in and says, well, actually, um, it is fated, so... That will be right. when they awaken. They will awaken under the light of the stars. The, the other Valar don't seem to be privy to this information. He's enlightening them. And, and he uses the word doom. Uh, and that's a good note for listeners who, if I haven't said this in another episode, the word doom Tolkien uses often to, to, to interchangeably with the word fate. It's the doom of man. doesn't mean that their dreaded end. Yeah. Uh, like many assume that word to mean in modern language. It, it can also mean just the fate of men. The end result will be... Uh, this and it could be good, it could be bad, it could it could be neutral. It's just that's their fate, that's their doom, and he uses it a lot actually in this chapter, uh, the word doom. And it's often Mandos that says it, <laughs> right? Well, and, and there's a, a circle of doom even, yeah. Um, which which really should, if you th- it sounds horrible, but if you think about it that way, it's just this where, where they discuss um, the fate of the world uh, and Arda and, and, and time. So. Um, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's interesting that at that time he pipes in because when I read that again recently, I, I think I reached out to Jeff, maybe uh, and you guys, and I, I was like, well, wait a minute, <clears throat> if Mandos knew that the children were going to be born under starlight, then why the heck did he let them build the lamps? Like he yeah. didn't know when they were going to be born. Um, the children, he didn't. They they weren't privy to the to, to the exact timeline. So it was a risk. Well, I don't know. It was a risk. I guess, I guess, as he watched them build the lamps, he was like, "Well, this isn't going to last." <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, wh- it doesn't make sense. But why not? Does it? But no. But at the same time, why not? Because if you know that the children will be born under the stars, and you're building lamps, then you also know that those lamps will get destroyed. Because well, he as did long anyways. As the yeah, because as long as the lamps are standing, the children are not coming. Are not um, are not being awakened or are no, not for sure. Earth, I, so I agree, but isn't it sort of sort of um, counterproductive? Well, to not say anything if you know that couldn't like the others are building the lamps, thinking like, yeah, this is great. We're going to grow all this stuff for the children. Can't wait till they awaken. He, I, in my mind, it would be useful for him to at least say, well, guys, just realize this: like, as long as those <laughs> are still up, the thing, the, the the reason you're doing all this won't happen. You know, like it's it's odd to me that it doesn't come up until this point. Yeah, don't, do don't, that already. Don't worry about decorating the outside. It won't be. It won't be needed. <laughs> well, that's it. <laughs> he seems to have known that, anyways. And I, I, I thought maybe uh, more of them knew, but at least him knew. 
at least him knew, at least uh, Mandos knew that uh, the lamps couldn't last. So I thought that was sort of interesting when I, when I read that, uh, that they were fated or doomed to be born under starlight, mm. um, which is a beautiful part uh, of the book where it says, uh, Mandos says, and because of this, they will hold Varda in the highest uh, esteem with the most regard. Which, which they do, and, and um, I just recently shared a video of the professor um, writing some Elvish um, runes, and he's, he, he's writing the traditional um, Elvish greeting, which is uh, our greeting um, happens... Oh, shoot, I should have written it down. I'll just, I'll just edit it in properly after. And here we are with the Gandalf lightning strike. What I should have said was a star shines upon our meeting. Traditional Elvish greeting. And that is, you know, so interconnected to this idea that he had right at the beginning of the Silmarillion that the elves were going to be born under starlight. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Elbereth's creation. And that's uh, actually, that's actually, James, a really good, um, a really good time to, to say that what was really apparent about that particular part of uh, this chapter, you know, with Varda creating the stars and the constellations, uh, Tolkien creates this fantastic fantasy world um, of Middle-earth, of Arda, but he does it in such a great way because he manages to put lots of familiar uh, base materials, shall we say, into place, which the reader's familiar with. So, you know, it talks of... Um, it talks of Menel, Menel Maker or Menel Mesa. I can't pronounce it, but that's effectively Orion, uh, the Shining Belt. So... I, I add, it's exactly what I thought as I read it. Yeah. Uh, the, the applicability of that is it said, you know, and the Shining Belt of... Exactly, um, and and the so and so. I thought, oh yeah, that's Orion, and you it pointed is. out as well the sickle, right? Yeah, the sickle of the Valar. Now that's the plough. So we, we we know we know these star constellations. And Tolkien, it is Tolkien has used something that is very familiar to us, and he's then he's then put that into a into a fantasy sort of world, and it means that when he then talks about dragons or orcs or or other um, parts of the story that are not familiar to us, we have a better um, appreciation because it is based in in this very familiar setting. Um, it appears easier to believe as a result, and I think that's just really well done. Yeah, there's lots of evidence of these tie-ins that we can can relate to. Uh, Thirteen being an unlucky number in the beginning of the Hobbit. Yeah, um, sort of jumps out at me. But there's there's lots of these sort of like uh, interconnected things with our world and this world, which which helps that along a lot. Uh, and yeah, I like to when you you mentioned the constellations. It says in the chapter that it was sort of the greatest achievement of, of any of the Valar was when she built the constellations. When, if you think about it, um, as beautiful as the Earth is as a planet, they all built that together and had a, had a small part in its making. And then look up at the sky at night and think that you know one of them is responsible for yeah. all all of those. Yeah. 
billions of, of stars and, and the placement of them so that they appear to, to look a certain way from this planet, you know, in the form of constellations, that is one heck of, a, of an, an achievement, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I hadn't even thought of that until just then. But yeah, I mean, she's, she's doing multiple planets, isn't she? She's, she's, she seems to have built most of the rest of the, you know, universe, if you want to look at it that way. But yeah. just, yeah, the idea that there's so many of them, no matter what they are, if, they're, if it's an, a universe like ours with, with, with solar systems and, and other planets, or if they're just, um, you know, balls of, of uh, pure light in the, in the sky, to create that many of them in that order uh, is a feat. Absolutely. And, and actually, as we will discover as we go through the Silmarillion and into the Lord of the Rings as well, there are references to, uh, not, not named as such, but... It seems pretty clear that this is what Tolkien was getting at, or from an applicability point of view, that, you know, there's references to Venus, there's references to Mars. Um, so yes. th- there are these really key, familiar aspects of the story that, that are the, the backbone, the structure behind this, this fantasy world. Yeah, and I like the, f- the, the feminist in me likes the idea that um, Varda was sort of the greatest... Of, of all the Ainur, if you look at it mm. that way. And it says, yeah. it says as much in the text, uh, most revered by the elves, great, greatest in their eyes anyway. Um, and, it, you know, that, that's a, a role. I wonder if that's because uh, some of this text was written years after um, The Hobbit came out, which even at the time it was noticed that, you know, there were no real women in, in the book at all, with, with the exception of a couple mentions. So I wonder if that affected his stories, or I wonder if, if uh, Varda was going to be the most revered um, right from the get-go when he started writing Silmarillion uh, ideas down, you know, uh, at the same time as The Hobbit in the 1920s or whatever. Quite possible, can isn't just, it? Can, can we just uh, take a little pause here and travel back to ancient Greece for a minute? Definitely. Yes. Going back to antiquity, let's revisit um, the gods of Olympus. Era is Zeus's wife, and um, she is jealous of her husband's multiple conquests of mortal women. And one of these women become pregnant with uh, becomes pregnant with Zeus's kid. A little baby boy is born. And Zeus loves this mortal woman, so he takes the baby, brings it back to his palace, and Era is sleeping. He puts the child on Era's breast, and the child suckles. When Era wakes up and she realizes that the bastard child of her unfaithful husband is actually drinking from her, she pushes the baby off her breast, and the milk spills from the baby's mouth into the heavens and you get the Milky Way. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea that a female um, a female goddess is associated with uh, stars, the creation of stars or um, the uh, positions, orientation of constellations and whatnot like is is very organic from that perspective. So um, I like that he did that. I like that Tolkien did that. It's kind of like a tip of the hat to uh, um, the system of 
mythology. Yeah, mythology. From, I, I, mm, I can't yeah, imagine it's antiquity. accidental too. He was so he was so thorough um, that I'm sure that that uh, was at least like you say a tip of a tip of the hat and not just a, a, a nice coincidence. Um, and yeah. I, 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 that story is really cool and well timed. May, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Next time you look up, when, next time you look up at the night sky, when you see that kind of hazy, brighter streak across the night sky, that's the Milky Way. You're looking into the the, the core of our galaxy, and uh, that's how the ancients uh, told the story. So wow, makes sense to me. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, and so uh, once the constellations uh, are finally all formed, this seems to be the uh, the cue for the awakening of the firstborn, which are the elves. Uh, the elves awaken uh, first in Quivienin. Um, probably pronouncing that wrong, but someone will correct me, hopefully. Um, and they awaken uh, alone. They seem to awaken. It's it's by, it's near the water, uh, under the starlight, um, and and may pose some really great questions, which I think we should toss around at least a little bit. But um, I'll ask you um, to throw those at me in just a second, May. But poetically, it's very beautiful, the idea that they're born under starlight. Um, they're born uh, at a time in the world when it's, when it's dark and uh, it's dreadful and there's some terror uh, mixed in with this leftover beauty, which has been switched off because there's no light. And so uh, it sort of starts right there. Now, May, you had some more practical questions. Uh, do you want to kick yeah. some of those around? Yeah, actually, uh, pass over the marshmallows before we get started. I'm getting yeah. hungry. Yeah, definitely. I think a couple, a couple of uh, all right, bacon-laden ba- s'mores. The, are in the order bacon here. is taking its time. All right, you wanted it crispy. That's true. It smells we did say amazing. Crispy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone got any yeah, ketchup? So, so uh, yeah. So while we while we uh, we munch on our food here. Um, it just, you know, it makes me wonder, what did the elves eat when they woke up? That's um, true. Everything was dormant, like we just said. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good mm. question. What did they eat? What was their form? What did they form? eat? What, how were they born? Did they just uh, awaken as adults, or were they I think I can answer children? that one. I, yeah. I think they yeah. were... Well, I, this is just a guess, but based on how the uh, dwarves were created, uh, seemingly as adults... Um, in full form, I would imagine that the elves were also adults, like fully formed adults, at least capable to like, you know, walk around and, and take care of themselves, not, not completely hapless. Were That's they guess, clothed? Uh, were no, they probably not. I don't think they were clothed. Clothed? See, see I, I pretty, well, so when I say I'm pretty certain, I'm not pretty certain at all, but I've got this, I've got this idea that I've, read somewhere from uh, is it the book of the lost tales the first the first one of the the middle earth um series where you get an idea of what tolkien's uh, understanding and, and what his vision was before putting it you know into final final print and i've got a feeling that the the original idea was for three elves to be to be born so the first three uh, whose names actually uh, were the the numbers the elven numbers okay and 
I'm pretty certain I've read somewhere that the idea originally was that each elf was going to wake up alongside their spouse, which would suggest that they were, you know, adults, rather than than children. I think they they probably awoke as adults. It makes the most sense for a couple different reasons, and just mostly practically. If, if a bunch of, if a race of babies awoke in the woods <laughs> in, in Middle Earth at yeah. this time, I just think we would never have heard of them again because that yeah. would have lasted a few few weeks. I'm pre- I'm pretty certain it was it was there were three fathers or, or three three original elven men um, who were not the same three that were chosen by uh, Orome to. Go over to a man, and right. that was in the original writings of of the Book of Lost Tales. Now, it isn't obviously mentioned in the Silmarillion paragraph that we're reading now, but I do believe the original idea was there. So, cool. That would Thanks suggest the, similar to the dwarves. I have that as well, so I can look that up and uh, maybe interject something in the editing room if it's necessary, if I can find a quote or whatever. But um, yeah, I think we can all we, we all pretty much agree they must have been born as adults. Mm. I think. Yeah. Good. So uh, what they ate is a real mystery. Uh, I don't know how they baked their lembas bread. Maybe when they awoke, um, loaves of lembas bread also awoke beside them because there wouldn't have been much vegetation. The flora, although there were beasts to hunt, um, which will get which ties in nicely, actually, to something we're going to talk about next. Um, there were things to hunt. Um, but who, you know, who, who would have taught them how to make weapons and to catch things? Uh, all these are mysteries to us. All we know is they awoke under starlight, and they taught themselves uh, how to speak to each other. And in fact, they named themselves something, um, which means uh, Kendi, Quendi, uh, which means, um, you know, animals that speak, basically, because they're the only ones that they've run into so far mm. um, that speak, uh, which also actually may alludes to that there were other animals, since their, their name um, makes that distinction, which they could have been eating. Maybe fish would have been the easiest to catch first. It, it does say, James, actually, um, later on in, in the text, that in the beginning, the elder children of Iluvatar were stronger and greater than they have since become. Yes. So, so perhaps, the, yeah, perhaps they were even born with without the need without the need to sort of be nourished or or to to have use of food. No, that's possible. First couple of generations could maybe go for really long periods of time or didn't need as much sustenance or any mm. at all. That's possible, I guess. Mm. Um, or, or also, like May, May was just saying, I, I think, uh, started to say, maybe they innately knew May, right? Like uh, maybe they just had that knowledge of how to hunt or fish or gather or something just innately. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. That's possible. Uh, either way, um, I don't, it's not explained in this particular text. And so we're left just uh, with the idea that they awaken and fend for themselves for a while. Now, they are ageless. They're immortal. So time, um, you know, we could be talking about uh, years and years and years, decades and decades and decades, uh, which is all just a blink for them. And eventually, uh, it says in the text, uh, they run into a couple of the Ainur. Uh, The first of the good guys that they see is Orome, which we'll get to in a second. But in fact, it also says in the text that Melkor becomes aware of their awakening uh, even before Orome finds them. And because he's afraid, 
um, of the elves. They're so beautiful. They're, they're so, they're coming, they're, the foretelling of their coming was so important uh, that he's, he's jealous of them and he's afraid of them and he hates them. Uh, so he wants to basically uh, eliminate them and corrupt them. And so uh, because he finds them first, it says in the text that he, he makes them afraid of Orome. He makes them afraid of a hunter. And he does this either by um, having some of his beasts hunt them on, on what appears to be a horseback to spread the rumor to fear the hunter. Yeah. Um, or, by, or by actually just making it rumors as he, you know, he, he did steal and kill some of them. Um, but so when they do finally, when Orome finally shows up, some of them are afraid um, because they've heard these whisperings of this, of this thing to fear, which is all created by Melkor. Already he's put doubt and fear into the elves before they, they meet their first, um, their first Valar. But then they do. He shows up, he finds the elves, and this super soldier huntsman, Orome, uh, is their first impression. Uh, May and I both sort of came to a similar conclusion on this. I'm going to let her lead it. Um, it struck me that the elves we get to, to meet in the story fire a bow and hunt and, and seem to, um, in some ways at least, um, have been affected by their first impression. Uh, May, do you want it to run with that a little bit? Um, actually, that was my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, then um, go ahead. No, no, just because I'm not sure what the answer is. That that's why. Um, yeah, but I did I did wonder um, what kind of lasting effect having Oromi as their first contact with a Valar was going to have on the race the elves were going to become. Yeah, I I, yeah. Uh, I, I think there's got to be some tie-in to the idea that uh, the guy who rides um, his great white horse and, and hunts foul beasts and has that, that sort of brave, uh, c- courageous um, hero with a bow uh, demeanor and, and, and uh, aura and persona, I, I think that that had to have a, a, an impact on their culture. Now... Um, there's more evidence to come down the road that, that we could say go, goes either way, but just off your first impression, didn't you think that, that um, the elves you see in the movies, for example, are, are um, related to the Orome you imagine in your mind? Well, out of the three races, whenever there's a conflict that uh, involves, obviously, uh, fighting off orcs or fighting off the dark side... The elves always seem to be in control of their fear. They don't seem to um, lose their cool, you know? It's as if, yeah, been there, done that like a thousand times. And maybe that's where Orome's influence um, seeps through in the sense that Orome's purpose is to hunt uh, the creatures of the dark side and they're yeah, very comfortable I, I, doing that aren't they they're, 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 I, I they're, very, com- they're very comfortable he, and yeah. he's got a bravery about him he's got an, an yeah. innate sort of um, you know head, head into the, the dark place and, and face the, the dark fear which, which I think maybe yeah something that that did translate down may I see that I see that definitely in the books in the stories in the way that the elves behave maybe and attributable he, too to the fact that they know that they can't really even if they die they don't really die I think that would give you a level of bravery, um, you know, oh, yeah. as a mortal. Y- y- yeah, you don't even fear death because death is just, it's a detour 
because yeah. you're coming you're coming back. Transition yeah. form. Only. Yeah. Uh, and also, it, it, it almost g- death that way. It almost goes to explain the, the you know what happens later on in this chapter. You know, they're very they're very um, willing to to travel to to explore to to be adventurous to you know discover the rest of Middle Earth. And Orome is going off you know hunting things and and it, it, there are similarities that way. It's not just the appearance; it's also the nature and the characteristics of of um, you know what the elves become um, more than any other member of the Valar. You know, if if Olmo had had met them first, rising out of you know the the waters around the island, um, it, it might have been different. But I think it was I think right. Have I think them. he would have. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he might have drowned them. I don't know. Uh, I, 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 what I'm, what I'm, I guess what strikes me is is the lack of a nurturing figure because I, I'm not picturing Orome as being like a nurturing kind of guy, you know. Yeah, you're um, right. There had to be a lot of innate, uh, innate know-how built into that race, the men like and the women, because you're, there's nothing that starts them off with any help at all. You're right. Compassion, uh, I don't know, patience, nurturing, like all these, all these uh, attributes that we 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 give the female figure, like the mother figure. Um, in this case, like so how wait a minute, Yavana just because he's a is. guy, he can't be nurturing. I'm oh. so offended. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I mean. But father figures, I'm talking about, you know me. I, I, I'm very nurturing. To, oh no, I'm just kidding. I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. Um, there is there's guess, no example of that. No, you're right. Like regardless of gender, the yin and the yang, the the you know the the soft nature versus like the hard nature, the the feminine, the masculine, like all of that is encompassed in each and every one of us, no matter what our gender is. But in, in with respect to the these archetypes, like Oromi's archetype, the hunter. Um, I don't he doesn't know. seem very nurturing. There's not much exposition towards his nurturing side, <laughs> no, so that's not. why I'm just, I'm just a little surprised that uh, that's the first guy that they come in contact with. But again, maybe it's a question of survival. If Orme had not been the one to first uh, hang out with them, maybe if it had been Yavana, they would have been great gardeners, but completely useless on a battlefield. You know? Yeah, and it was it was by chance. I mean, it says that. Thus, it thus it was that the Valar found at last, as it were by chance, those whom they had well, so long awaited. Is it, it really was by chance, chance though? Is it? it? And it's even if it's chance, it's a chance out of what? It's not a one in thirteen, because only two of them were spending any time in Middle Earth at all. Exactly. So exactly. unless it's a fifty-fifty. But it could, but that's it, but that's a fifty-fifty that, like May said, I mean that that's a fifty-fifty that could have gone very differently. Yeah, that's true. I if mean, Yvanna I love. I, I love. Their first impression is very different. Yeah, I love Yvanna to, to bits, obviously, from like the last the last chapter. But she's 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 quite unique. Well, and she's hard to fear. And here's something I, I I thought of as I was reading it. It says in the text that Melkor like makes them afraid of Orome, and that makes sense because like Orome is one of the two um, good guys hanging out in Middle Earth that they could run into. But it doesn't mention anything about them make him making them afraid of Yavanna. And, like, I, I started thinking, like, is that because she, it would just be so difficult? Like, it's easy to make someone afraid of a Vel, Van Helsing-type figure. 
Like, he's scary. He hunts. You know, he's tough. But it'd be very diff- much more difficult to make people afraid of your Yavanna-type figure. She's nurturing and beautiful and mm. gentle. I um, think... Yeah, go ahead. I think, I think Melkor is being cunning. I think Melkor is, is studying his opponents. So on one hand, he's got a hippie tree hugger. On the other hand, he's got like a professional killer. So which one is more of a threat to him? Oromi. Mm-hmm. So he's got to vilify Oromi because Oromi is more of a threat to him. That's how I see it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that's I, I can't really find fault in that logic. That makes a lot of sense. I would say too that um, it's it's not impossible to vilify a beautiful woman, right? Like, look what Gimli says about uh, Galadriel. Like, he's certainly afraid of her before he meets her, and and she's sort of along the same veins of Yavanna. You'd think like, oh, how could you be afraid of Galadriel? But he's afraid of this, you know, beautiful enchantress, right? So he, mm-hmm. it's not that Melkor couldn't have done it. Um, like you say, May, maybe it's just he he. Of, of the two of them, Orome was certainly a much bigger threat to him uh, at that point anyways. Uh, yeah, that, that is a nice little tangent there, uh, James. Let's get us back on track. Uh, so the, the children awaken, and this basically is Orome's cue to go back and say it's time uh, to deal with, with uh, Melkor. The children are awake. Um, the place is dark. Like, what are we going to do? So he goes back again, and they speak again adds. And the decision is to do what? Well, council number two. So they they are summoned. The Valar is summoned to the Ring of Doom, and uh, which means Ring Man- of Fate. That's right. And Manwe says, "This is the council of Iluvatar in my heart that we should take up against the mastery of Arda at whatsoever cost and deliver the Quendi, so the elves, from the shadow of Melkor." And. Uh, yeah, Tolkus is extremely glad, uh, but Ole, he he grieves because he is foreboding, worried about the hurts of the world that must come of that strife, which is an interesting. It is Yvonne interesting is comparison. Like, yeah, from last from last episode, he he got it. <laughs> he heard Yavanna. He was like, "We got to be careful to the damage we do to the to the things of the earth. They're they're precious, um, and so." Ole, to me, got the message. Now, there's a different way to take that, too. Uh, it could be a bit of a taste of his own medicine, uh, which is maybe another way to look at it. Right, May? Yeah. So, Yvanna <laughs> is walking around in Middle-earth, uh, looking at the direct consequence of evil on her things, on her creations, on her, on her plants and her animals, let's say. Yep. She sees it firsthand. She, her dreaded... Um, fears are coming to reality. Ali, on the other hand, is still in Valinor. Um, and now there is a chance that his own creation, so the land, everything that he's created, um, gets, um, gets a makeover. <laughs> and he doesn't like that idea. <laughs> he doesn't like the, the prospect of maybe damaging or losing some of his own creation. So maybe that's why he's a bit more hesitant uh, in backing this war against Melkor. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. and, and I think you're right, too, uh, to point out that there's a big difference in their motivation just because uh, who's seeing it firsthand and who's not. I think the fact that Yavanna is there 
uh, to, to live it is so much different than hearing about it. Uh, and there again is applicability to real life. Um, it's just, it's so much easier to believe in a cause when you've lived it. Uh, and she's over there seeing sort of firsthand what's going on. Um, I want to point out, Manway doesn't make a decision here, eh? Again, uh, council number two, he's put to the, you know, he's, he's pressed um, to make a decision and he turns to, to the big guy and says, what do I do? And then, uh, based on Iluvatar's uh, advice, he says, okay, we have to do this. But he doesn't set, decide um, to go and do this on his own. So Manway really... Uh, as a leader, is very passive in the decision-making department. Yeah, he doesn't come out, in my eyes, he doesn't come out of this chapter very well at all. I am... Um, I, 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 associ- I associate I associate three three major decisions in this chapter where I believe if they'd been taken differently, we'd have had a different outcome as a result, a better outcome. Um... Well, we can talk about that, but I, 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 we talked about it a little bit before the show, um, and I, I agree that it would have been very different. Better, though, uh, I think what I think is a point of view, and we'll get to that when we get to the third one. Mm. But uh, they do go declare war, and you're right, the, the big laughing guy is super happy about it. Uh, Tulkis and troops go to war, and it is a war. You have to remember in your mind, it talks about the hosts of bad guys hidden uh, in the pits of um, Melkor's fortress. It talks about um, hosts being uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of creatures that have been corrupted or created. Uh, and, and the good guy team is made up of, of dozens or hundreds as well. You've got to remember, yes, there were only uh, a handful, a dozen or so um, Valar, but there were dozens or hundreds of Maiar, lesser uh, god creatures. And so this was a, an all-out war, so much so that there's a beautiful part of the chapter that describes... Um, the war from the elves' perspective. They were so far away um, on the other side of the continent that it didn't, uh, they weren't uh, in threat or peril from this war necessarily, but the sky lit up with, with um, fire, the light of many fires, and the ground shook as the Valar uh, went to war with Melkor. Which yeah, it talks, I, about, it talks about bays as well, doesn't it? You can almost picture the coastline and you, you can, you can visualise those parts of, you know, modern-day... Uh, the modern day sort of map where yeah. the coastline goes in these big bays and then these smaller bays and it talks about how you know there are these these massive uh changing coastlines as a result of this huge battle yeah they really they it's it's um, a world affecting uh fight and yeah we're talking about you know beings this the, the size able to raise and smash down mountains um you know we're certainly a war of epic proportions and it also mentions in the text that because uh, they sort of get a glimpse of the Valar on their way to war with Melkor in their wrath on their way to war um, they're fear they're fearful uh, mm. which is normal uh, their first impression is, is not a gentle uh, exposition it's not uh, a friendly welcome it's oh there goes these massive forces on their way to fight something and they look pretty pretty angry so they're afraid of the Valar at first. Orome, uh, you know, is, is, is a tough guy, and then the Valar are mad when they see them first. So their first impressions aren't gentle ones. No, at this point in time, you know, for all they know, there is no good side. There's two bad right. sides fighting. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> not, right. it's not a good versus evil at this point for them. No. Um, 
I'm going to jump back to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, but I, sh- I wanted to mention, though, when they do, despite Melkor's uh, attempts to make them fearful of Orome, when they do finally meet him, those, those brave enough uh, to, to go out and meet him are immediately drawn to him. They see the light of Amon in his face. They, they see, uh, they can recognize uh, the goodness in him. Yeah. It, 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 there's, it doesn't take them any time. It says, I think, something to the effect of, like, the most noble among them were most drawn uh, to Orome. So the lies and, and the attempts at deceit didn't work once they actually came face-to-face with one of the good guys. No. But it did, uh, it did obviously, you know, Melkor's actions did lead to, well, uh, orcs in envy yes. and mockery of the elves. So, you know, there were lots of bad that came out of those early years when the Valar weren't doing anything. No, that's true. Um, some of those corrupt, some of the beasts and things that they ended up having to fight uh, were probably more numerous and more horrible than they would have been if they had acted sooner, mm. right? Mm. That, that war might not have been so hard to win if they had acted sooner, but Melkor had time to corrupt and steal elves and create races of things, or, sorry, manipulate races of things. It says in the text, actually, specifically, he couldn't create like Aule did. He didn't seem to have that power to create life, so that's why he had to corrupt the elves. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but they win. The good guys still win the fight, and they chain Melkor. And, and there's some great imagery here, and I know May's probably getting a little antsy because I know this part interests her. <laughs> there's some parallels she wants to, to draw, and I'm going to let her do that. Um, try try to, to, to be excited about it, though, May. You tend to be a little low-key when you talk about Norse <laughs> mythology. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, right. it, says, it says, I'll lead you in like this. It says, Tulkis, um, r- as the champion of the Valar, wrestles Melkor, uh, throws him on his face, chains him, and drags him back uh, to um, Tenequitil. Yeah. Um, the, the mountain of the good guys, and where he's again, you know, cast down on his face uh, to face judgment. Does that remind you of anything, May? Yes, it does. Guys, let's take a little trip around the world. <laughs> Let's start with the Bible. Uh, very briefly, because I'm not um, versed in Bible lore, but let's just look at the concept of the Antichrist. So um, Melkor can be seen as the Antichrist of Iluvatar. So what does Antichrist mean? It comes from a, an ancient Greek word, Antichristos. Antichristos means the opposite of, in this case, Christ, or the opposite of Iluvatar. So um, the idea that the complete evil is punished for something they, they have done is obviously something that's not new. It's not a new concept. It's pretty much in all stories around the world. Um, the punishment of the one who rebels and goes against uh, godly law is also something that uh, is seen in Greek mythology. So in this case, Melkor rises against Iluvatar in pretty much all the chapters we've read so far. Uh, they finally get to him and he's got to pay for what he did. So um, 
in Greek mythology, we have something similar to that in the tale of Prometheus. If you guys remember, Prometheus is the god, or the titan rather, who gave fire to men. So uh, back in the days, only the gods of Olympus had access to fire. Um, Prometheus stole the fire and brought it down to mankind. And for his transgression, Zeus tied him to a rock. And his punishment was to suffer the pain of having a bird basically pluck at his liver for the whole of eternity. Nice. Um, so, again, Oof. the binding to something, right? The Antichrist is bound in hell until the end of time. Uh, Prometheus is bound to a rock, uh, has to suffer through, um, has to suffer through a, a form of torture. And... Let's take a look at Norse mythology. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a whole tale in Norse mythology that's called the Binding of Loki. So um, I'm just gonna. What I'm gonna do now is I'll just go through the whole Binding of Melkor and kind of highlight the things that kind of stuck out to me, and Excellent. then we'll we'll take a look at how the, this ties into Norse myth. So um, what Tolkien does is um, Melkor is hiding in a desolate place in Middle-earth. He knows the Valar are coming. He, um, uh, when he does go up against the Valar in this battle, uh, the earth is shaking. So we have earthquakes. We have natural disasters. There's talk about like the coastline being reshaped. There's like tidal waves and whatnot. There's just, it's almost like apocalyptic. And it must have been really scary for the elves to live through this, uh, to see like their, 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 their world being shaken and reshaped and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. especially so, in order to nurture them. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so they just see this as a, a battle of the powers. I think that's how Tolkien calls it in this <coughs> chapter. Uh, eventually, Melkor retreats to Utamno, his fortress, and he burrows deep underground. Tolka, um, Tolkis, Tolkis wrestles him. Uh, Melkor is bound in chain, like you mentioned before, and uh, they are using a chain that Aule, um forged. Yes. In this way, they bring Melkor. So Melkor is bound. He's he's disabled, basically. They bring him before Manway. Melkor actually begs for pardon, and he's denied. And what happens? They keep him in a jail. They keep him somewhere in Mandos's halls, and he cannot escape. This thing is escape-proof for the next three ages. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay, yeah. So, um... I'm basing myself here on um, on a book that was uh, that was mentioned in mythology. So it's the Norse myths by Kevin Crossley Holland, and he's got a really nice narrative going through the binding of Loki. So um, in Norse mythology, Loki is the Antichrist. Uh, Loki is uh, the prankster, the bad guy, the Joker. Um, but at some point. Loki goes from being this ambiguous character to being pure evil, and that's towards the end of, uh, of the sequence of mythology. So uh, Loki is accused of orchestrating Odin's son's death, so Baldr. Baldr is 
Odin's favorite son. He uh, embodies beauty, um, uh, peace. He's he's Balder looks like what your elf would look like. So he's beautiful and gentle and just you know. Um, uh, very unlike the rest of the gods, so he he's he's got this very innocent characteristic to him, this pure purity. And Loki, being the evil guy, actually um, kills him, has him killed. Now, while everybody is mourning Baldur's death, Loki goes takes it a step further and he st- starts insulting all the gods who are at the funeral. So by doing this, he's basically going to war. <laughs> Uh, against each and every god individually and he knows that at this point his fate is sealed all they're gonna come for him so he better scram so what he does he escapes he escapes where to middle earth uh to midgard so (laughs) (laughs) he escapes to midgard he buries himself beneath rocks and rubble he hides and he cowers because they're coming and who comes for him who came from melkor talkus In this case, Thor comes for him. Yeah, he finds him. He extracts him out of his hideout. The gods haul him into a cave deep underground, so something similar to Mandos's halls. And there they bind Loki with the gut of one of his sons. The gut is bound. It is used as the as the as the chain that Melkor is bound with. So Loki is bound in in gore, and the gore becomes iron. And <laughs> yeah, and just to make matters worse, because they're really upset with Loki, right? He's been a bad boy. They hang a snake over his head, and there's venom that drips out of uh, the snake's fangs. And every time the venom hits Loki, Loki um, uh, thrashes in pain. So that's his form of torment for pretty much until the end of the world. And every time Loki thrashes, there's earthquakes that shake the earth. So again, this battle of powers that we saw with the Valars is again echoed, or rather the opposite. Um, the battle of powers from the Valars it echoes the the idea that um, a thrashing god or fighting gods are behind natural uh, disasters. That's on awesome. Earth. That's amazing. Yeah. It that just amazing. reminds me of something someone said uh, this week: is that the the real the most impressive thing about Tolkien's work is that he was able to take the, his, his favorite parts of his favorite stories and mesh them into one narrative. Yes. And that, it, it, what you just said is like a perfect example of that. He really, he really picked and, and chose and, and worked in these ideas from the, the things he loved. And, and Norse mythology, like you, May, was one of his absolute passions. So, um, wow, that, that's eye-opening. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who, who are Norse mythology fans like you, but I don't think your average Tolkien reader knows this, th- these parallels, and it's really cool to hear. Yeah, I didn't. I, I knew yeah. nothing. I knew nothing until, until May got involved and was able to present the, the Norse mythology side. I, I can honestly say, hand on heart, I had no appreciation of where Tolkien would have got these ideas from. I would have said that they would have come from his own imagination, which they have, but they've been heavily leaned on by yeah, by the Norse side of things, which is incredible. 
really awesome stuff. Yeah, he 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 took from from Norse mythology heaviest, but like seemingly many mythologies. Yeah, and yes. stories yeah. and yeah, that's right. just worked worked his favorite parts into his his own idea, which is just beautiful stuff. Um, and it's ju- it's just a testament of how good of a writer he is, or how good of a a creator of story he is, a storyteller, because it's one thing to to get inspired by something it's something else to make it your own you know and to make it your own in a very personal way so i mean if you're reading tolkien if you're reading let's say this portion the the binding of melkor you might just zip through it without even thinking twice about where this could have come from because he's made it his own to like the best of his ability you know yeah yeah so so th- that's that's how you can appreciate the kind of writer that he was. Amazing, amazing. Uh, okay, well, th- May, thank you for enlightening us once again. Uh, you always add such uh, a, a nice perspective to the show. Uh, is there anything about um, is there anything about the Loki parallel uh, between Melkor and Loki be- besides uh, the chain thing? Is there anything else about the way that their fates are handled? Um, similar because I, I, as you were talking about it, I'm thinking to myself like, okay, so Loki gets caught, he gets chained, all of that must be where Tolkien draws this stuff from. But um, in the end, Melkor gets forgiven, and and does does Loki ever get out, or is he really there till the end of time? See that that's where that's where things kind of diverge because Tolkien was also. Uh, a stout Christian, so the idea of forgiveness, the idea of you know turn the other cheek, perhaps you know, is is something that transpires through his work. Norse mythology was different. Um, it's really like an eye for an eye. So in this case, um, Loki doesn't get forgiven. Uh, the gods feel horrible that. You know, they, they, they're full of sorrow that they have to make one of theirs um, suffer this way. But it's necessary. In their yeah, eyes, it's, 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 a, it's a, you know, a, 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 in, in, um, in Viking lore, there is a compensation that is required after someone um, insulted you or someone killed your family or whatnot, you know, there is, there is always a, a, a transaction that needs to occur. So you need to get revenge. It's not something that you can just forgive and forget. This is not the Christian way of thinking, you know? So in this case, Loki pays for his deeds and he manages to escape. And when he does come back to Asgard, when he does come back to uh, Midgard, he comes back as um, the bearer of evil. He comes back as the captain of the ship. He's at the helm of the ship of the dead, and he's coming back for Ragnarok. So that's when the shit hits the fan, basically. It's the end of the world. It's the apocalypse. It's the end of, in Tolkien's case, would be what? The end of the Third Age. So the great, okay. the final battle. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully the end of the fourth age for, for the men in the story. Fourth, yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully. But, but uh, yeah, the, the parallels are deep, deep cuts. Uh, mm-hmm. bringing, us back to, bringing us back to where we were with the, with the um, chapter itself. Uh, so once they've, they've got him chained up like Loki, uh, there's another <coughs> debate. And basically it says, uh, Then again the Valar were gathered in council, 
and they were divided in debate. For some, and of those, Almo was the chief, held that the Kendi, or Quendi, should be left free to walk as they would in Middle-earth, and with their gifts of skill to order all the lands and heal their hurts. But the most part feared for the Kendi. Um, in the dangerous world, amid the deceits of the starlit dusk. So basically it's saying that um, they're debating if they should go and uh, help out the, uh, the elves that have awakened, which almost like, no, let's just leave them alone. We, they're set up, they can fend for themselves, they've got skill, let's let them figure it out. Um, but a, a, a larger number seem to say, no, uh, let's bring them here or let's, let's fix things or let's, let's uh, intervene more. That debate, uh, adds, is sort of the third opportunity they, they have to make a decision. What do you think about that decision? Well, I think that's, as I've, you know, I've touched on before, I think it's, it's some... Strike three? It, yeah, it, it's, it's another example of where I think they probably... Well, in my view, they chose the wrong decision. So you, you have the first one is... In my view, they let Melkor control Middle-earth for too long, which led to, eventually, elves being turned into orcs. So that's that's strike one. Strike two, um, when they captured Melkor, you know, it, it actually says many evil things still lingered there and others were dispersed and fled into the dark and roamed in the waste places of the world, awaiting a more evil hour, and Sauron they did not find. So yeah, they never got they, the they never got the lieutenant. That's a they, that's yeah, a big they, mistake. They didn't finish the job. They 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 went in. They they had a big fight. They they caused massive issues. But when they won, they then didn't they didn't finish it off. So that's strike two. Strike three. They chose at the the third council. They chose to summon the elves to a man, and that we will see in later chapters has a knock-on effect. And, you know, yes, you could argue there are good things that come out of that. There's also a lot of bad things that come out of it. Uh, Ads, I, yeah, no, I, com- I completely agree. They, they've made some decisions that are questionable, and the, the consequences turned out, uh, in some cases, good, some cases, bad. But uh, inevitably, uh, you've got to make decisions, and they did summon... Uh, the elves. Now, we're at a point in the chapter where there's a lot of information, and I, I referenced this at the beginning of the show. I said there's a chart or a table in the back of the book that really helps with this in a way that I think the text um, uh, lacks a little clarity, and the chart does not. So certainly flip to the back of most versions of your Silmarillion and take a look um, for, for these genealogies. But we're not going to delve into this too much tonight. We're, act- we're actually going to probably talk a little bit about uh, the difference between which elves followed when and what they got named, the, the light elves, the dark elves, the ones who eventually made it to Amman and which ones didn't. Um, but what, the way we'll, we'll sort of wrap up here is to say that, yes, um, after Melkor was chained, a decision was made to call uh, the firstborn to Amman, and most decided to go. Some did not. Um, and of the ones that decided to go, uh, they took different courses. Some went faster than others. Some lingered for a really long time. Mm. When you're talking about immortal races, 
Uh, time isn't necessarily always of the essence. And there's some beautiful stuff, actually, how it says, like, on their walk, they found many beautiful streams and rivers and places that they wanted to just check out. And so they would just stop and live there for a while yeah, on they, their path to Amman. They talked about, you know, they'd follow Orome, and then when Orome went off to, you know, kill another foul beast, they would stop where they'd been left until right. he came back and carried on sort of leading them on the path. Um, they were in no hurry, it says. No. Um, which, you know, again, immortality will do that to you, I, I think. Uh, so that is a really nice part, but we'll wrap that up when we talk about um, the next chapter, which is a tiny one, a beautiful, maybe the most romantic um, chapter in the, definitely the most romantic chapter in the book. Um, in terms and of easiest of, uh, to read, romance per, romance per word because it's like a page and a half long and it's, yeah. it's just beautiful. Very uh, Luffy is pretty one. romantic too, mind you. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, we'll, we'll we'll discuss and get into the chart and the names of the elves and and why the ones who saw the light of the trees are called the light elves and the ones who never did um, are called the dark elves and we'll get into their genealogies a little bit more. But for tonight, I think we're going to try to wrap up this rambly episode now. Uh, on our way out here, we're going to mention some people, as we always do. Uh, first, I'd like to point out that uh, on the way in, uh, we did not plug ourselves. And so if you'd like to find us, if you'd like to give us some feedback, if you like anything about what you've heard or you want to correct us on something we've said, please come out and find us at The Green Door Pod on Twitter. That's probably the best way to interact, but it's not the only one. You can also come and uh, join us in our Facebook group, which is also uh, a fun way to share ideas and uh, play some games. <coughs> the Facebook group itself is also called uh, the Green Door Podcast uh, Facebook group. Uh, we're also on iTunes, so if you could and would and have just a few seconds to click the mouse, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, that sort of does a lot to help promote us up the ranks and give us exposure and visibility. So if there's one thing you can do to help us out because you like what we're doing, do that. Uh, and from there, I'm going to pass it over to Ads to assign a little homework. Uh, ads, talk about a short chapter and maybe some, uh, some other things that they should check out. Okay, so yes, the homework for the next show. As you know, we've touched on already, it's to have a little look at that diagram at the back to probably reread the last couple of pages of um, of this chapter, but then it is to read the wonderfully long chapter four of Thingol and Melian, uh, and it shouldn't take you more than about three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it is beautiful though. Read it twice because it's just such a such a beautiful concept. Um, yeah, it is very, good. very romantic. It is From there, um, let's let's thank our friends. Uh, let's thank Nathan Mills um, at Beyond the Guitar, uh, who introduced us in. Let's also thank Harry Merle, who takes us out every week. Both of these guys are worth your time. Go check them out on YouTube. Yep. Um, please check out May K. Hella's YouTube channel. There's not just awesome mythologies on there. Um, there's also some really cool stuff about nature walks and Viking bread and a, a whole bunch of other really good content. So go check out her stuff. Um, May, thanks so much for being here tonight. Ads, uh, thanks for your time across the uh, campfire there. I hope we had enough marshmallows for everybody to go around. <laughs> Is there anybody you'd like to say goodbye to on your way out? Uh, May, I'll head to you first. Um, a special 
thank you to our girl, Caitlin Alansari, who has been so wonderful keeping the Facebook page alive during the month of March. She's amazing. Uh, Caitlin, you're a star. I love you. Good job. Thank you so much for being part of our group. Uh, aside from that, yeah. I just I just want to mention, guys, that we are also on Instagram. We have an Instagram uh, page, so uh, make sure to come by and say hello. Um, we like to hang out with like-minded people, so anything Lord of the Ring goes, uh, Lord of the Rings goes, and uh, yeah. So we're on Instagram. Um, just uh, uh, yeah. I have nothing else to say. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Ads. Who are you, who are you going to shout out? Okay. So the, the usual gang, we've got At Home One Hangout, Mike, Matt, and Professor Chuckles. We've hey got guys. Um, Alan and Sean of the Prancing Pony podcast. Love uh, those guys too. The wonderful Jeff Lasala, the Silmarillion Primer at Tor.com. Um, and obviously, goes without saying, the boys at Tumbling Saber, of which James is one of them, but Kyle, Corey, Carlos... Great job, and the Star Wars Commonwealth as a whole. Yeah, that Commonwealth is really worth checking out also. I have to agree with that. Um, and I always like to tip my hat to Jeff and the gang at Home One Hangout and Prancing Pony Podcast. Uh, I think our thank yous uh, list is similar every week because we, we do get a, a lot of feedback from the same people, and we'd love to add you to that list of people um, we talk to and talk about. So please, if there's anything, any questions, any feedback, something made you laugh, um, especially if something made you laugh. Uh, let us know. And on that note, uh, Ads, I think it's time to douse that fire. Uh, May, we're probably going to sleep under the stars because that tent is nowhere uh, near being set up. Uh, but that's okay. I got three hammocks, and the, it's a beautiful night here, guys. So we can, uh, we can exit tonight's podcast by saying good night, everybody. Good night. Thank good you night, guys. for being here. Okay, May adds for the intro tonight, we will do uh, the camping thing. So I'll speak first. I'll walk in after the bullet points and then May, you can answer. So let me speak uh, and then you can answer. I'll just walk in and be like, hey guys, how's it going? Here we go in three, two, one. Did I lose a connection, Hey, guys. guys? Great to see you. Oh, May. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Wow. Ads. Good Seriously. patience, man. Wow. Impressed. That's, that's <laughs> pretty. Broker. That's pretty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You did this on purpose? I didn't even realize. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, my Skype is defective uh, again. Oh.